1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Take me
2: to
3: the Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Kelly Richardson Lawson. I'm a mother, a wife, and an entrepreneur. I started the Sunrise Project after our beautiful teenage son attempted to take his own life.
0: Truth is, I'm
3: my husband and I felt despair, isolation, and immeasurable pain. I knew in my heart we needed a place for Black parents to share their struggles, find mutual support, and help our beloved children who struggle with mental wellness, addiction, or both. Each weekly podcast features an expert who shares their knowledge and takes questions from parents and children.
4: the The
3: Sunrise Project allows Black families, like ours, to find comfort in knowing that we are not alone. While the purpose of the Sunrise Project is to share, support, and uplift, this conversation is not a substitute for medical advice. Finding the right healthcare professional for your family's specific needs is crucial. If you do not feel seen or heard, you should speak to more than one professional to find the right fit. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining
4: us. I'm really happy that you've joined us. Um, The intention of this is to have a safe space and a place where we can share with one another in a space of love, compassion, And a mutual desire to heal ourselves and our families and our children. I'm going to open up with a serenity prayer, and then I'm going to our expert for this week, Danielle Bucray. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm now going to turn it over to Danielle Bucray. She's a clinical social worker with a specialty in family therapy. She has three children of her own, uh, one who's in college and two in high school. And she's going to be speaking today about anxiety.
5: Perfect, Kelly. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for calling in. Um, I want to talk today about um, anxiety and its prevalence. Anxiety disorders are actually the most common mental health disorder in the United States. Sadly, only one-third realize what's happening and report it to their doctors early, right? So that's kind of what I want to make sure that we're all aware of so we we realize when it's happening uh, to get our boys help. Sometimes we tell family and friends that our kids are suffering from anxiety and we kind of get a blank stare and uh, trying to be supportive, they might say, you know, oh, everybody's stressed in high school, especially in junior year, or, you know, kids are mean in middle school. But there's a, a difference between your average stress And anxiety, you know, both can lead to sleepless nights, exhaustion, lack of focus, and even, you know, our teens being a little prickly and irritable, right? Which most parents see every day. um, But they are signs of stress and anxiety. You even see some physical symptoms like rapid heartbeat, and they might get headaches, and they can impact teens experiencing stress um, and those diagnosed with anxiety disorder. So stress is the body's reaction to a trigger, like a paper that's due. And it's generally a short-term experience. Uh, stress can be positive or negative. So when stress kicks in, um, it may help our boys finish a paper for school that they've procrastinated. In that case, it's positive. But when stress results in insomnia, poor concentration, and an ability to do things they normally do, it's negative. That's still stress. Anxiety, on the other hand, is a sustained mental health disorder that can be triggered by stress. It doesn't go away once the threat is mediated. It hangs around for the long haul and can get in the way of their normal functioning in school, at work, with friends, or even in their activities. What we call generalized anxiety disorder is a diagnosis Um, Diagnosed by a mental health professional, Uh, the defining feature is excessive anxiety and worry about a number of thoughts, but occurring more often than not for a sustained period of time, like six months. The intensity of the worry is out of proportion to the actual likelihood or impact of the anticipated event. Um, I often describe generalized anxiety disorder as your child's brain taking something that's kind of in their imagination they've made up and making it real. Right. For example, when a high school freshman worries that they'll never get into college because they got a C in biology, right? As adults, we know that it's not true, but they believe it to be so and they start worrying. And in their mind, they might be thinking things like, you know, I'm not good enough now, I'm not smart enough, I'm a failure, and all these thoughts whirl in their heads and cause them to stop being able to function. So you might find that they stop doing things they previously loved, like that art class or that sport, Um, because of the fear that it'll prove, again, that they're not good enough. And before you know it, they're staying in their room because that's their safe space. And this isolation often looks like depression, but at the onset, um, it might be an anxiety disorder. Like many health conditions, the cause is both biological and environmental, right? It could be genetics. It could be um, differences in the way threats are perceived in their minds. Some of the risk factors include like general personality. A teen whose temperament is timid or negative or who avoids anything dangerous might be more prone to um, generalized anxiety disorder than others are. Of course, there's genetics. It may run in families. And then experiences. So teens with generalized anxiety disorder may have a history of significant life changes, traumatic or negative experiences during their childhood, or recent traumatic or negative events. So something is as much as, like, a lot of physical moves. So if you move from place to place, like a, like a um, military family, could literally be um, a risk factor. Also, chronic medical illnesses or other mental health disorders may increase their risk as well.
0: This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living.
5: If your son's at risk, it's important to keep an eye out for some of the common signs. So difficulty, controlling, worry, maybe some restlessness if they feel keyed up or on edge and irritable. Uh, difficulty sleeping is a common um, symptom. And then there are headaches, stomach aches, dizziness, impairment in social, occupational, or other areas of functioning. Um, and then there are some physical symptoms shortness of breath, rapid heartbeat, um, and chest pain. Often this looks like, like they're having many panic attacks, right? So panic attacks is another common thing. At least 6 million Americans suffer from panic attacks and panic disorder. Um, which are both conditions that classified as anxiety disorders as well. According to the ADAA, about 2 to 3% of Americans experience panic disorder in a given year. So it's more typical than you would think, and it mostly affects individuals when they're in their late teens and early 20s. When panic attacks occur or recur for no apparent reason and in the absence of any real danger, Or when the fear of experiencing another attack is so strong that teens change their behavior by avoiding certain places or certain things that may trigger a panic attack, it it becomes a little more serious. Panic attacks are really scary events. I don't know if anybody on the call, um, if your your sons have experienced panic attacks, but it feels like their hearts are about to come out of their um, throats. There are a few things you can do to help them come down from it. One is, of course, deep breathing. And I, and I love this technique because it is so at their, at their disposal all the time, right? So deep breathe in for five, out for five. So it has to be really deep and really long. Also counting backwards from 100 down by threes. Again, it keeps them mindful. And then there's another trick that I like to, to use, which is I ask them to tune themselves into four things around them that they can see. Three things that they can touch, two things that they can smell, and one thing that they can taste. And again, it just it takes their mind off of the physical and really um, helps their heart rate go down. Overall, the best treatment involves a combination of therapies along with uh, mindfulness, learning deep breathing techniques, yoga, and exercise. I know when I tell my adolescent clients about mindfulness, they kind of roll their eyes, but it's really the most effective way to stay stay centered and present, but it's one of those things that they can't just pull out of their pockets. You know, mindfulness is the thing that you have to practice. So um, I encourage all teenagers really, because they're going through so much, to stay mindful and to practice mindfulness like literally five to 10 minutes um, every day. So when they really need it, they can access it. Overall, having generalized anxiety disorder can be disabling. It can impair their ability to get stuff done quickly because they have d- trouble concentrating. It can really sap their energy, take their focus from other activities that they used to do. And if not addressed, it can increase the risk of depression.
4: Danielle, before you move forward, um, yeah. I think that's
5: one of the things that happened with Kyle
4: back in the summer, a couple years ago when he turned 15. And then right after he, and he turned 15 right after he um, went out to the Olympic Training Center. He was invited out there swimming they invite 40 kids from across the country and he was one of them and what happened to him out there was that he realized he was a big fish in a really big pond versus being a big fish in a small pond and that affected him tremendously to the point where he came back I think you know looking back I can see now what I didn't see then and Keith is on the phone as well but Keith and I didn't really recognize what was probably anxiety at that time um and then led into depression, we didn't realize, because he had, you know, this moment where we thought it was going to be great for him, and he came back feeling less than, I think. And so as you're talking, I'm I'm relating and,
5: and
1: you know,
4: recounting that experience
5: from two years ago when he
4: turned uh, 15. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Kelly.
5: I mean, I, I don't think that it, it, it's common. And it, one of the major things, too, is like, We need to get our boys talking, right? Because you you don't know when it's happening until it's too late, right? Until they're no longer interested in in doing things they used to do, whether it's a sport or art or something creative, they kind of shut down before they actually start, you know, talking it out. And communication can really help you as a parent, right, get in there early to, to stop it from going any further. Some other things that we can do as parents to decrease the symptoms of the anxiety are again, to introduce mindfulness and meditation, right? It's really important to keep their minds in the present and not allow them to like catastrophize what might be happening in the future or spiral on past occurrences. For those um, with kids who suffer from anxiety, you know, sometimes even applying to college, right. is really tough. They start, you know, it's a long process it starts, you know, summer before junior year, and then they get their applications in in January, and they have to wait, right, lots of lots of time for them to completely catastrophize everything that could possibly happen. Another thing we can do at home is daily exercise. You know, it sounds simple, but producing endorphins will allow them to improve their sleep, which in turn uh, reduces stress and anxiety. I talked about communication, another way for teens who don't um, necessarily feel comfortable being vulnerable like that. Sometimes if you have your, your teenage boy start keeping a journal, detailing their feelings and their thoughts, right? Because the only way we can really debunk that, that negative thinking is if we know what the negative thinking is. So have them start writing stuff down, um, not necessarily that you as a parent have to see, but something that they can work with. And then, of course, make sure they're sleeping and eating well because that will also kind of derail them. Um, and no one to ask for help. I think, you know, when stress no longer feels manageable um, and symptoms of anxiety start seeing them interfering with daily living, sometimes it's time to seek an evaluation from a clinician to really get to the, uh, the bottom of it. And, and I always urge everybody, don't wait. You know, it's better to, to bring them in to see somebody and have that somebody, that clinician tell you, no, I think it's fine. It's just stress versus waiting too long and, and before you know it, it's out of, um, out of your control. If we can kind of open it up and, and really let's, let's kind of talk as a community about not only the anxiety, but any questions or thoughts you may have had from discussion on depression as well, we'd love to hear it.
3: Someone wrote in a question. They said, I'm interested in finding someone who can talk with my son about getting therapy. When I mentioned it to him, he said, I'm not doing that. I don't need it. And he's totally against it. How should I respond?
5: Well, I would, um, and I'm sure other people have, have gone through this as well, um, you know, because the whole therapy thing carries a stigma, but it it's more about you know, maybe even not use the word therapy, maybe just, do you want to talk to somebody and then have them involved in the process into picking that somebody, right? Maybe get a couple of different clinicians and say, you know, why don't you read these bios and let me know what you think of these people. So much of the therapeutic relationship is just that it's a relationship, right? So if they actually are able to choose the person that they think they could work with best and be involved in that decision, then maybe, it'll be a little less daunting. Also, I'd recommend, like, to say, not, not let's start therapy, but let's just go in and talk and see just this one time and see um, if it's something that helps you. Has anybody else had any experience with uh, your teens pushing back?
6: I have experience with my teen pushing back because um, our child has never been open to getting help. But I, in listening to you, um, my husband and I were saying, I think this issue of anxiety with boys is especially around sports in the high school years, Uh, because hearing Kelly's story and just thinking about it, you know, black boys have in some ways an easier end in high school than black girls just because a lot of them tend to be athletes, but what about all the pressure that comes with that? What about all that pressure that comes with when you're not the best athlete or when something goes wrong and so much of the identity Mm -hmm. world putting you in that box. I guess in our experience, sports has been in many ways a good thing, but also an exacerbator of stress with a black boy in a predominantly white school environment where that's part of how you're defined.
4: Yes, yes, a thousand percent. I agree completely. Danielle, can you speak to that piece of it? Because I feel like that's another big issue of anxiety you know, many of us moved to Bethesda, Maryland, because we wanted really, really great public schools. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, you know, didn't look deeply into the uh, diversity makeup. And now that we're in this particular school, there's 3% black people. And um, as the woman just said just now, you know, many times our kids are star athletes or, you know, standouts and whatever it might be, and then there's all that pressure, do you think that that is a, uh, a problem? And, and what should parents do as they're thinking about schools and diversity and all that? I have a hypothesis now looking back, but I'm wondering if that's a big part of it as well, the lack of diversity for our kids.
5: Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. There's some truth in, in having, you know, more people, not necessarily all the people, but Some people who look more like you and and culturally are more in line with what your family, how your family lives lives and what they believe. I know I I also moved from a primarily African-American community to here in Montgomery County, which is not primarily Brown. But um, I I know my children had trouble adjusting as well. And, you know, you you go into high school, and and I love what you said about, you know, the expectations when you're going into a predominantly white high school and you're an African-American athlete is that you're going to be, you know, you're going to be the star basketball player. You're going to be the star swimmer or whatever it may be. And there, there is a lot of pressure that comes with that because that's how you're then identified, right? Regardless of whether you're as a teenage boy, really smart and do well in the classroom. That's not what people are generally seeing and so there there is that pressure but again to the constant communication with you guys as parents is really important right to, to help the boys identify with more than just that right so that if god forbid that you know they get injured or something happens that they have other, they realize that they're a whole being and not just this this athlete we're all very proud of our kids whether they're athletes or whether it's debate team or robotics, whatever it is, we're all very proud. So we tend to blast it on you know, social media or tell our friends about it, which is all good and great. But again, it's important to recognize whether that's adding additional pressure to the kids, like not, not the fact that we're pr- proud, but the way in which we talk to our friends about it, right, to make sure that we present our kids as whole. I do – Kelly, you talked about this, this cultural, you know, decision and whether you would make that decision again. You know, I, I have one kid in college but another going very soon. And one thing that uh, they were saying when we were talking over this, this break that just recently uh, ended was that it's, it's not critical necessarily to have people around you that looks like, look like you, but it's critical to have people around you that have – similar experiences and respect and so I think it's not only looking at an environment for our sons that look that have kids that look like them but an environment in which they can feel like they're welcome right I talked earlier about this idea of like kids going in their heads and thinking they're not good enough and they're not enough and a lot of that comes with the fact that you know if they're different then the people around them sometimes make them feel less than and I think that that's that's critical. Again, we got we to talk to our boys.
1: You know, as as a father of an uh, African-American teen, it's, it's already the um, sort of approach that, you know, get over it, rep some robot testing on it, it'll, everything will be fine. So that sort of tough it out mentality that mm-hmm. is part, I think, part parcel of the problem in that um, we definitely, um, in the African-American space, don't like to talk about um, either Mental health issues and, and so forth, but I also wanted to um, have you sort of lean in on the social media piece of it because you know um, you mentioned the thing about about pressure and so forth. Like we have two sons, both are, are you know really good athletes. One responds one way, one responds the other. So with 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 Kyle, he sort of liked to be um, he likes to be the alpha dog, and so if you for me who likes to post stuff like I'll, I'll Go to a race and film it and post it. He wants to. He wants to get the video immediately. He wants to see it. He wants to talk about it. Meanwhile, the younger one, if I post it, um, sometimes it's like, oh, he's, he's sort of, kind of hiding from from the pressure. So um, it's important to notice how how that affects either. And the social media thing becomes a big issue because, as we know, that now that everybody's into it, it becomes a whole um, life sort of comparing thing like oh yeah his life is better than mine or their lives are better than mine so you end up in a space where posting becomes to your point a very stressful thing if if you you know if you're not careful if you don't know your child
5: right and you said something very very important and that you do have to know your child right and so with social media the first and foremost thing is you know let's not introduce social media to our kids too early it's it's one of those things that seems like it's all fun and, and play, but it puts a lot of pressure on kids, not not only our kids, you know, boys, girls, all of it, because it's, it's putting yourself out there, and that's the image you are. And, and, you know, I try and tell a lot of my adolescent clients that, you know, you have to realize that what people post is their best selves. It's the best version of themselves. So if you're comparing it to you sitting in your – you know, your, your sweats and your you know, glasses at home and seeing other people on the beach in their best bikini, it's really difficult. It's not, you're not comparing apples to apples, right? So there's that level of like anxiety around just missing out or um, not being as good as other people on whatever platform you're on in terms of parents posting things of kids Right. I think, again, I go, I can't um, overemphasize the communication piece. Right. You can post for your kids. We're all very proud of our kids. And I think posting about them is great, but to get them involved in the decision, like, is it okay that I post this? But for somebody who's a little bit more, more modest and doesn't necessarily want that information out there um, to respect that boundary.
7: Thanks, thanks to you all, and thank you, Kelly, for and, um, for uh, putting this group together, and, you know, I, there's probably a million questions I have, but uh, I'm still trying to just understand anxiety and understand depression, and my, you know, my family has a, a history of mental illness I do know sporadically, um, and I've kind of been watching my kids become increasingly um, isolated, isolating themselves and i figure a lot of it started when there was a a dissolve in my in my marriage and it it struck them and there's been a lot of physical movement from home to home around Mm -hmm. the area and schools and they've lost friend you know friends have because of the transfer you know they've lost friends but they're both of my children one's a boy and one's a girl they're isolated they're close to one another but, uh, and, and my son is uh, seeing his father uh, in a major decline, which appears to be depression, but it's anger and a, a lot of other things. So, but it's affecting him and he doesn't wanna talk to his father anymore. And of course, uh, any mention of therapy is, he, he's reluctant and, um, you know, so I've just been struggling with what what to do and, um, just looking for the triggers, it just seems like, um, you know, he doesn't have, appear to have anxiety, but depression, and now it's very hard for him to get him up in the morning now. He seems he moves slowly. Um, he eventually gets there, but it's becoming increasingly hard. And this past quarter, grades drop, are dropping, or he's not turning it in. He's not turning some things in, but how do siblings, because he's close to his, his sister, How do I, and she's a couple years older, how do we, you know, kind of share this with the sibling and how are the siblings able to support one another? Because they seem to talk about things that are not shared with me. So I hope you grabbed onto something there. (laughs)
5: You you, you gave me a lot, actually.
7: Okay. So, So. So focus on, so I was just really giving you the sort of the background and kind of what I'm dealing with. The so bigger question was, you know, just between, how do you also support? How can the sibling support? What do I say to his sister because she's getting information firsthand? Yeah. And with in in a it, without saying, don't snitch on your brother necessarily, but you know, it's a it's impacting her and she, uh, it's impacting her. But she has the firsthand knowledge. So, how do I kind of? Helps short, my daughter saying hope but at the same time she's helping her brother and maybe coming right. to me when she knows it's critical. If I don't,
5: right? If she said she's older than he is,
7: she's two years older. Yes.
5: Yeah. So I, what I love about the sibling thing, and we, you know, we talked earlier about communication, of course. And I want to bring up the idea of like support systems too. So while therapy is great, and I highly you know recommend it for the person who needs it, right? Sometimes in the early stages of anxiety, just being able to talk to somebody is really <clears throat> important, right? So the fact that he has his sister is is a wonderful thing and it's a gift. Um, in terms of how to prepare his sister to be able to talk to you about things that are kind of red flags, right? It's important that she know what they are. So if you are concerned and I hear your concern about is lack of motivation, maybe grades dropping, isolating himself, right? All kind of, you know, pink flags, if you will. Not necessarily a problem, but definitely something to investigate. So having her understand, like, what you're looking for in terms of your concerns so that she can either validate them or, um, you know, tell you I don't think it's a problem because of X, Y, and Z, um, help her understand that it's not snitching, that, you know, we're trying to make sure that he's taken care of is really important. Just top line, hearing what you're saying about your son, though, I would, I would maybe, you know, approach it like, approach therapy, like I said earlier, in terms of, like, maybe convincing him to just go see somebody just one time to talk through, just making him feel better. You know, you don't even have to throw out words like anxiety and depression. But, you know, talk to somebody to feel better. It's sometimes, sometimes it's the language we use to, to kind of demystify what going in and talking to a therapist really looks like.
7: Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at AARP.org slash healthy living.
4: I'd say also there's this great book I just started reading called How to Get Your Son Back. And um, it was recommended to us by another family. And um, I just sat on Audible and listened to about half of it uh, recently. But a big chunk of it talks about, as Danielle said, communication, the importance of, you know, active listening and really searching for, un- you know, just listening and being there and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really creating that communication with, with your son. So I would recommend that book. It's called How to Get Your Son Back.
3: Someone has asked this question. Our child has anxiety and depression. She lashes out at us and says horrible things. We know that's her disease talking. What is your advice regarding what we can do to stay healthy as parents while trying to love and care for her? She's had therapy for some time, but her behaviors are really affecting us. What do you recommend?
5: I'm sorry that you, you're going through that. I, I I get it. That's really It's really tough on the parenting end. Part of it is to like lean in to her, right? When she's being prickly and rude and angry to actually lean in as opposed to backing up um, and help her work through it, knowing that the anger and the, the rudeness comes from the disease and not so, not so much just who she is, right? So that that's the tough part is that you know that. But to encourage her to do things that I'm sure she's hearing in therapy, like to express her feelings. And, you know, anger is a go-to feeling, sometimes it's irritation, sometimes it's frustration. So to to kind of broaden her feeling vocabulary to better understand exactly how she's feeling and how, why she's reacting the way she is. In terms of self-care for you and your husband though, right? Important not to let it be all encompassing. So to let the professionals do what they do. You know, you said she's in therapy. So in order to to kind of step back a little bit, you've got to trust the process. And it is that it's a, it's a journey. It's not an overnight fix, but to practice self-care too. And I talked earlier about meditation and mindfulness to go for walks, to get exercise, to really take care of yourself so that you can be strong for her during this journey. And you do have, you know, you, you and your husband have each other. So to lean on each other when you're feeling some kind of way, to be able to, again, communicate between the two of you, whether it's a date night or whether it's just an hour on a Friday night that you guys go in your bedroom and vent, then that's fine too. But you need to remember to take care of yourself because that's the only way you're going to be be able to be there for her. I actually like to put it out to everybody, everybody on the call. Say, is anybody else dealing with a, a child with anxiety and depression who's lashing out, and how do you handle it?
3: Here's another question someone wrote in. My son also has had anxiety and depression for the last four or five years. He's overeating and he's obese. What are your thoughts about going to Overeaters Anonymous in addition to the care of a psychologist or a psychiatrist that he's worked with for the last four years?
5: In all honesty, and I don't know if anybody else on the phone has more experience with it, I don't have enough experience with Overeaters Anonymous to... Um, speak on that program specifically, but definitely something that you should mention to the, um, the therapist and the psychiatrist. I mean, it could be a combination of eating behavior and, and medication if he's on medication, but important to kind of identify the fact that it may be um, an eating disorder as well. And so that's really a, a conversation to have with the professionals managing his case.
2: Okay. Well, oh, I, I do have a little experience with Overeaters Anonymous and uh, the organization that's modeled, as one can imagine, after Alcoholics Anonymous. And it really provides a community uh, for individuals who go to food for therapy. And, um, and it can be very enriching and helpful and, and so forth. And uh, they end with the serenity prayer that Kelly spoke of. So it might be something to try again after consulting with the psychiatrist and psychologist, uh, but it has helped uh, thousands of individuals, so it might be worth a try. Okay, thank
5: you. Earlier we talked about support systems a little bit. I touched on it with the siblings, um, and that's probably, if modeled like you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, it, that's, that's one of the best parts of those programs is to realize kind of like what we're doing now to realize you're not alone um, and to get guidance from others who have kind of walked in your shoes okay thank you guys
4: i do think those meetings are probably helpful i know um when kyle came home from newport in december late december he was doing aa meetings every day and he said they were super helpful for him and he was looking for a sponsor so um, i think as long as you find the right group that's my thought i mean you found a couple groups and a couple of meetings that he really liked, young people meetings and clean yeah. teams and things like that but so i think that's probably finding the right group that your son feels good going and feels like he's being supported
3: i agree okay. i think
4: it's worth a try absolutely i'm not an expert at all but i think that that it sounds it seems like it's worth a try at least the aa meetings
6: um where we live have been really helpful okay hey i have a question for um danielle what in the case of like that particular child suppose they don't want to go how much how effective can a mental health intervention be if the child is not bought in to the process that's a great question
5: so i think when the when the child is resistant Right, Really important to identify who that child sees as his or her support system Right, to then engage that person, whether it's a friend. It can honestly be a friend or maybe a godparent or something to help them understand. I think it's really important to present to the child as, you know, not we think you need help, but we love you and we want to see you, you know, be your personal best or be happy, find joy, right? A, a lot of kids will don't even think about, you know, can I be happy? They're so obsessed with having to either succeed or live up to something or, or whatever, and they kind of forget that it, really they need to find their own personal joy. So I think that's, that's part of it. And, and for each kid, it'll be different, but to help reposition um, whatever help it is, whether it 's a group whether it 's residential, whether it 's you know weekly therapy, to really figure out what 's going to kind of click in your child 's head of like oh okay i can I can feel better or I can find joy or you know maybe I can go back to playing soccer again, like whatever it is that that 's like golden ticket at the end, um, they need to talk through it and believe that they can get through the hard times to that other side.
4: Danielle, can you speak about how do you lean in exactly without arguing with your child? Like, a, you know, having a big fight. Because, you know, we've been in lots of big fights when yeah. I tried to lean in, and it's not been helpful for anybody or for gotcha. the relationship. So how do you work on the, how do you try to build a positive relationship when you're upset and angry and frustrated as a parent
5: with your child and it turns into a huge argument. Um, Right. So, so breathe. Mm -hmm. Right. I get it. I, I get that, you know, a lot of these conversations are not easy. Right. But we kind of have to go back to um, kind of communication number one Oh one and realize that there'll be times when you're communicating with your teenager that he, he'll get defensive, right? So you have to make sure that you approach it so that, you know, you're not blaming and that they're able to, to hear you. Right. But there's also this, what's called stonewalling, which is when, you know, either you or the teenager gets flooded and you just can't take anymore. Like you're either so irritated or so angry that you're not hearing, they're not hearing, and there's no real communication happening in which case you ask for what you need. And a lot of time that's space. So to say, you know, listen, Kyle, or listen, Billy, whoever it is that you, I I need 10 minutes. I just, I'm not listening to you right now because I'm angry, I just need 10 minutes. And to walk away for 10 minutes, do your deep breathing and then come back to it. The most important thing is that you come back to it in a calm manner right so what even if you need like an overnight okay let's all go to sleep and let's talk about this in the morning over breakfast but then you have to whatever you commit to you actually have to follow through with I think that's really important and, and the last thing is to stay away from criticism you know if you can if you find yourself using the word you too many times you do this you do that you always do this you know stop yourself immediately and visually if you can Visualize yourself pointing your finger at the child while you're talking. You're usually criticizing. So kind of back away for a second and reset and then come back to it. These conversations don't always have to happen immediately, right, unless they're in crisis. So you can walk away for a couple of minutes and come
1: back to it.
0: Thank you.
5: Mm -hmm. Is there any other
0: um,
4: comment or question from anybody?
1: So I wanted to mention something, which is I think a something that sort of goes across um, anxiety, depression, and some of those other some of the other issues, even substance abuse, is just a lack of a coping mechanism. A lot of I hear a lot of people talking about um, their reaction and so forth. When you know, I think a lot of the time it's just a kid trying to figure out, like, like in our instance, for example, um, our son. I think in my sort of observation is his bigger issue may not be just a it may not be substance abuse or even depression or anxiety it's more so an inability to have an internal coping mechanism for for whatever comes up so if something comes up he doesn't have like i may have the ability to go you know what i'm i'm stressed today so i'm going to go work out and that sort of calms me or I'll go do some meditation but a lot of our teenage boys don't have that coping mechanism is there anything you can say to speak to that
5: i i think that's a that's a great point i think it's it's how we how we pay attention to what we're saying to our boys as they're getting older as they're getting into these teenage years to give them permission to to give them permission to be human to give them permission to feel right is really important and then to introduce those coping mecha- mechanisms as they express their feelings, right? And, and you're right. As adults, we know, okay, take some deep breaths, come back to it, you know, talk it out. But it's not, those things aren't like natural, they're taught, right? So um, to, to teach our boys as they're growing up, A, to communicate their feelings, which I think is something that, again, doesn't come naturally. Right? There's a huge feelings vocabulary that a lot of people, including our teenage boys, don't use. Right? So to be able to communicate um, how they're feeling and then give them the appropriate tools as they're feeling them. Um, again, I hate to sound like a broken record, but so much of it is communicating. And it's not, it's not always up to the boys to bring it up, but it's also up to us to ask them how they're feeling, positive and negative throughout so that it's more a part of how we operate and not just situational.
1: Danielle, also, I know my wife and I have dealt with it um, since we started noticing um, issues, is that's that feeling of helplessness, which, I mean, you, you spoke spoke about the isolation piece, but the, the like, feeling uh, responsible or and all that, we saw we saw a thing, and I can't remember what the three C's was, it was sort of something like um, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it, I think that's what it was. So, you're looking at it, you know, as a parent you want to solve things, you want to fix it for your kid, and, and then it starts to turn into some self, I guess blame, and um, you're, you're feeling guilty about however this is manifesting in your child's life, and, and then feeling that you're by yourself. So, I think for the group, you know, that a lot of people feel that same way and knowing that, uh, you know, you can't really end up in that space where you're stuck in a space feeling like, how did I cause this, what did I do wrong? As opposed to dealing with what you can do to, to help your child.
5: Yeah, I love what you just ended with, with um, the fact that there's, there's nothing you can do about it and, and help feeling helpless is not only common, it's, it's expected right because because it is their lives that you are you're an advisor at this point you're not you know when they were maybe 9 10 different right you were doing more of the leading now especially as they become you know 15 16 17 you're really becoming more of a, an advisor and you're they're transitioning from you know late teens to early manhood if you will right so so we are Advises, And at some point we just have to kind of watch, but you know, we give, we give them the resources we give, we make sure that the door is always open. They can always come to you. They can always talk to you, but I think helplessness is a, is a natural um, feeling in these instances. So it's really, really important for us as adults to turn to our support systems, right? And, and say, literally, you know, call your whatever it is, maybe your dad, maybe your mom, maybe a great friend, and put it out there. You know, I feel helpless. Get some validation for the way you feel, because like I said, it's a journey. You know, it, it's, not, it's not something that you're going to fix. You're going to feel a range of emotions, helplessness just being one of them, hopelessness being another. But to, to turn to people that you trust to express the way you're feeling, just as you want them, kind of model that behavior for them, because honestly, if you're, get, if you're giving them the resources, then when they're ready to use them, they will, right? Especially if they're you know, solid resources that you know are addressing the issues that they, they're struggling with.
2: I really appreciate the, the three C's and uh, the help that you're giving us as parents around uh, keeping ourselves healthy and so forth. Uh, last week, someone had discussed where she and her husband may see things a little bit differently uh, regarding their child. Uh, that's the case with us as well. And I suspect that there might be a codependency like alcohol or drugs, but there's no proof of that. My husband doesn't see it and thinks that it's not a possibility, possibility at all. And I'm just wondering if you Have any advice for parents who may see things differently, you know, when there's no objective data, but you just have a strong suspicion um, or just see things differently, period. Um, How to keep the marriage strong.
5: Let me actually address the first thing, which is seeing things differently, right? We all have different backgrounds, different families of origin, different experiences. So seeing things differently is probably more normal than you would think, right? But if your child has a therapist or a psychiatrist, really important and I try and do this with my clients too when my clients are adolescents is to meet with the parents. So meet with your child's therapist to get them a little bit more um, objective data and what they're seeing and what's going on and making sure that everybody's on the same page including like a, a therapist, a psychiatrist and yourself to make sure that you're all not necessarily thinking exactly the same, but in alignment as to the diagnosis, if there's any, and how you're going to move forward. In terms of kind of one voice, I would recommend in a marriage going, when you're going through something this critical is to take care of the relationship, right? I, I do do a bit of couples therapy as well. And a couple of things I recommend is a have a time, regardless of what you're going through, have time for yourself, you know, and, and I, I highly recommend two times per week if you can do that. If you can do more, great, but at least two times per week. One is um, time for yourself, yourself, your relationship, your intimacy, the positive stuff, the love, the connection, right, to keep that going, but then also uh, reserve another time of week that I call State of the Union. And that is the the one hour or two hours that you need to make sure everything is taken care of. So if you're talking about your son and his care, to dedicate a time to sit down and talk about that so it's not infused into your time for your relationship. So that's really important to keep up when you're struggling, right? You are probably each other's best support system as you're experiencing the same thing at the same time that no
8: one else in your life is. Thank you. Danielle? Yes. Hi. This is probably more of a comment than a question, but Mm -hmm. it speaks to the point that Kelly made earlier about when her son went out to the Olympic Training Center. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I have found increasingly frustrating and like situations are the lack of accountability on the part of the organizations that are, quote, unquote, sponsoring our kids because it's one thing for us to manage their mental health, their emotional health when they're home, but when we trust these people to take care of our children when they leave, it's almost like they're workhorses. Uh, So I've been in conversations probably for the last year and a half with the staff at the Olympic Training Center because it's supposed to be a full package. When the student, when the, when the boys or girls or whomever, go out there for this opportunity for swimming. They talk about nutrition. They talk about, you know, they do the weight training, but mental health has yet to be incorporated into the program that they have out there. And even when the boys travel with the team, they've got, you know, they feel like they give them everything, but they do not travel with like a staff psychologist. And Mm -hmm. even with USA Swimming, you know, I've spoken with my son's coaches. Like when it gets to a certain level, you know, they really pressure them to, you know, drop time. They're spending all this this time in the pool or in dry land. but And then even in schools, it could be high school swimming. It could be high school academics. But you would think that at a certain level, in addition to tutoring and all these other things, the mental health support of the students in whatever activity it is, it seems like it needs to be ingrained in the program because the overall success of the child is dependent upon that as well. And I recently saw a commercial um, from Michael Phelps, who actually he's starting a campaign for that very thing, you know, saying that mental health has not been used with the Olympic organization and people are suffering greatly. So, you know, it's more of a comment, but it's, it transcends across academic athletic or anything else you're going to do, even in the workplace. It's almost like we're trained to be workhorses now, but we're not giving a total package of success. Right. Wow. Um,
5: we only have a couple of minutes left on the call. I
8: could be on this subject
5: for a very long time. Um, I, I completely agree um, with what you're saying in terms of the fact that there isn't a mental health component in a lot, lot of what our our boys are doing, um, both academically and and in their activities, um, I do love how Michael Phelps has come out and said, you know, that he struggled and and he, I think he's actually a spoke, spokesperson for an online um, therapy talk space, and I think that's great. It normalizes it a little bit, right? Um, I know the person he trained with a lot. Allison Schmidt also um, dealt and actually stopped swimming um, because she had some mental health difficulties. So, you know, it's prevalent. It's out there. Um, We're not, our coaches, our teachers are not as up to speed as they need to be. And there aren't the resources, but we as parents have to bring it to their attention. So my daughter My own daughter um, was having some difficulties and I had to go to the coach and explain to him what she was experiencing and normalize it a little bit for him in terms of, you know, she's not sick, but this is what's going on. Right. And so this is the way you can help us. And unfortunately for now, that's kind of what we have to do. We have to advocate for our kids in these situations. There is a book called what works with teens by two authors who are actually here um, in Maryland, but it's a book for clinicians, but also teachers and coaches um, on how to effectively work with teens and then from a mental health perspective. So if nothing else, if you have a, whether it's an athlete or you have, you're in a high school where you think teachers are not as sensitive, right? Give them a copy of the book. It'll, it'll help them kind of see it from a different perspective, but yes, I'm, I'm on it. I, I, I speak this truth all the time. And so all we can do as parents is to advocate for the kids in the spaces in which they operate for now. Wonderful. I just wanna say
4: thank you again for everybody um, who's joined the call today. It is a journey. It, it feels great knowing that we're working on this together and that we're sharing similar issues. And so I'd like to close with a prayer How comforting is it to know that wherever we go, God is there with us. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations and wonder if God is paying attention. We may feel so alone and even depressed. We can't feel God's presence, and we need his guidance and help. The wonderful truth is we don't have to feel all alone. God is with us. He is working out the problems, and we don't even realize it. He is with us leading us, guiding us, loving us, providing for us, all with his unlimited resources. We need only to always walk with the assurance by faith that we are going with him to receive what he has for us and our children. It is essential we realize how much he loves us and that he has a good purpose and plan for us and our families. We can trust God no matter what is going on in our lives. He is there, he is here. Amen. Have a beautiful week. Thank you,
3: everybody. Thank you. you. I'm Kelly Richardson Lawson, and you've been listening to the Sunrise Project podcast. You can follow Sunrise wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, open your podcast app and follow this show. Join us next week for another gathering of support. Thank you for listening. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental wellness challenges, contact your doctor NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or both. You can reach NAMI's helpline at 800 950 6264, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, or email at infonami.org. Volunteers are working to answer questions, offer support, and provide practical next steps.
1: Life is a highway.